In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear our first anonymous piece. Today, we have a guest using a pseudonym in order to tell the story that she needs to tell. As I mentioned last week, if you're listening to this episode on or around the day it is released, I don't need to tell you it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. This is my 10th Breast Cancer Awareness Month since my diagnosis, and over the years, especially the years that I've been publishing Wildfire Magazine, I've grown to realize how important it is that we highlight metastatic breast cancer stories and voices in this month and all year, frankly. Those living with MBC tend to get overshadowed by stories uncomplicated by recurrence or a de novo stage four diagnosis. But I feel strongly in amplifying these stories because they have something to teach us all about living in the face of illness. My guest today is writing under the name Jenny Collins. Jenny has been diagnosed with breast cancer twice, first at 37 and then at 46. Both times her breast cancer was lobular, the first time stage two, the second time stage four. At 37, Jenny had a great new demanding job, a caring husband, a new baby, and two young school-aged kids. She recalls that it was a beautiful time in her life, and yet she and her husband found it difficult to balance it all. They were tired. It was then that the first cancer bomb was dropped into their family. Jenny was diagnosed with early-stage, hormone-positive lobular breast cancer after finding a lump in her breast in the shower. The diagnosis and treatment completely rocked her marriage. She chose to write and share this highly personal piece in hopes that it will help one person feel less shame and maybe less lonely if their partner isn't responding to their diagnosis as they had hoped that they would. It's terribly disappointing and can be very isolating, but you're not alone. Hey, welcome to The Burn, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. So you are reading a piece that you wrote called Cold War. After you read, we will chat. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. All right, Jenny, I'll let you take it away. Okay, thank you. Cold War. She holds her plain gold wedding band between her fingers, rotating it round and round her finger. Her eyes close as she remembers the bright summer day they found it at a small shop downtown. It was part of an estate sale. It was $50. And she felt it held more meaning and carried more weight because it had belonged to someone before her. She imagined it to have been worn by an old woman who had been married to the love of her life for 60 years. Sweet naivete. None of that today. Today there was just a broken woman giving up on a man, giving up the most important relationship in her life. A woman finally gathering what was left of her courage and all what's left of her strength to say the words and mean it. I want to separate 
I've been looking for a place to live. We both know it's time to move on. He'd moved down to the basement six months prior without any discussion. To the kids, he blamed it on her snoring. He wouldn't touch her, show her any physical attention. They managed the house as roommates, faking their coupledom social life. It was the Cold War era. They hadn't sailed through her cancer diagnosis and subsequent treatments, like the fairy tale, How I Survived Breast Cancer and Found Myself books that she had devoured when she was first diagnosed. Reading those tidy stories about devoted partners attending every doctor's appointment, every chemo session, and scenes of the man tenderly moving his hand over his lover's new scarred chest only alienated her more. Her husband's actions were humiliating. She was full of shame. He had completely abandoned her emotionally and eventually physically. He was mad. He was mad at her. She'd completely messed up their life because she got cancer, because she didn't prevent it. Not that he had. Not like he had. He always made sure he exercised and he ate well, except when he didn't. He didn't smoke, except when he did a little. He wasn't overweight, or not a lot. She was often overweight, as having four pregnancies and three babies will do. It was true that she never made exercise a priority like he did. She only exercised in spurts, when she had time, or honestly, when she was interested and had the time. Chasing after three kids while he played golf, skied, cycled, and went to the gym didn't count. The bottom line was that he felt she brought the cancer on herself because she didn't take care of herself properly, and he was angry with her. He made sure she knew it. His disdain was thinly masked, and it was painful. The subsequent years of surgeries, mastectomies, reconstruction, a do-over when her implants leaked and poisoned her for a year, and finally the evil weight gain and side effects from hormone therapy cemented their relationship into darkness. Never once did he reach for his wife and wrap his arms around her to reassure her that the physical changes she was struggling to accept didn't matter to him. He couldn't tell her that his love was deeper than that, because he couldn't get over it. Instead, he voiced his honest opinion that the surgeon had done a terrible job on her mounds. When the burned woman cried out, he shrugged and said, Would you rather me lie? As she pulled down her top, standing in her bedroom beside the antique dresser that was once her grandmother's, he shivered with repulsion, looking away, saying, Yuck. That should have been the last point of touch. Truth is better than being told a lie. The fact that he would have had, had to lie to not hurt her is the true sadness. They'd been together for 15 years, had three children together, had built a wonderful life together, and shared so many happy times. But he couldn't just love and support her 100% through this scarring time. He wasn't deep enough or strong enough to be able to support the most important woman in his life. She realized what kind of man she was married to, and waves of regret and pain enveloped her. She wasn't mad. Her entire family and all those close friends who witnessed his actions over the past number of years and knew the real story were mad enough. They didn't need her to add to it. She knew they were all talking about what a disappointment her husband had turned out to be. It was going to be hard to recover from this socially, let alone physically. People expected her to be mad, and it occurred to her that she should have been mad. But how can you be mad at someone for not loving you? because that was clearly the message she heard. Him acting selfishly was not a new thing for her to deal with, certainly not. She was dealing with heartbreak and social humiliation, and he had either no idea or did not care one bit.
One time, he flew across the country to ski for a week, leaving her to recover from a chemo treatment and take care of their three young children. This didn't surprise her, but it was devastating and hurtful nonetheless, and of course, humiliating again. Her childhood friend Andrea had come to town to stay with her to help out. She was mad, indignant kind of mad, frustrated with her friend's apparent mild-mannered acceptance of her husband's actions. Andrea said, this is not normal. Do you understand that? But it was normal, she thought. It was perfectly normal in their house, and that is exactly what he said when she begged him to try to be more present and engaged with her through this journey. He would tell her what other people do in their houses is their business, but we do things our own way, and he was doing the best he could. She was the only person who was direct with her. Everyone else spoke in whispers behind her back to each other, except her mother, who was visibly angry and verbally aggressive with her husband. She lived far away, but came often to help and stayed at their house after a surgery or a chemo treatment. It would be so tense in the house that it became uncomfortable. He expected there to be no problem, thinking it was none of her business, which is really quite incredible. She could see what was happening, like the day her daughter, with drains hanging out of her, bandages on, etc., was getting up at 7 a.m. and trying to get the children dressed, fed, and ready for school, while their father slept in until he woke up to get himself ready to go out to work. Seriously, what in the hell? Looking back, he must have thought it was 1960 in small-town Quebec and they were devout Roman Catholics. He would bemoan that no one asked how he was doing. No one cared how he was coping. It's true that partners are sometimes forgotten. But in this case, she tried to explain that he was exempting himself from people's compassion by acting like an asshole. It was true. Friends and family didn't want to help him unless it helped her and the children. Deep down, in his way, she knows he did love her, but it all did not make sense. She began to realize it was probably duty that kept him there. He didn't love her as a woman. A man who loves a woman, his wife, doesn't do things. Do a man who loves a woman, his wife, doesn't do the things he did, say the things he said to her. He loved their life, their family. He needed to protect it. She still loved him, though, despite it all. Despite the rejection, she still loved him. That wasn't enough anymore, though. Everything was broken now. She felt like her insides had been ripped out of her and only a thin shell remained. She was heartbroken for him because she knew he would at some point lose the excuses and admit, even in his own darkness, that he failed as a man in the biggest test of his life. She thought there was no going back for them. Even through those years when she begged for emotional and loving support, asked him to go to counseling, told him that he needed to come to medical appointments and start showing up as a real man, he only expressed that he felt he was doing enough by continuing to work and take care of the children. He said he couldn't give more or he'd have a breakdown and then the whole family would be in trouble. We wouldn't want that, now would we? He'd gone into patriarchal power mode, his fail-proof defense tactic when he needed to regain control and set her in her place. He liked control and he felt it was his duty to stay and provide financial support. He did what he thought a man should do. For a long time, she continued to believe he loved her, but a man doesn't treat a woman he loves like this. He cares if she lives or dies. He tells her he loves her and wants to make her feel supported. 
He holds her hand down the scariest path of her life. He doesn't blame her, shame her, and then abandon her. He didn't seem to know how to love her without crushing her soul, and she could no longer make excuses for him and subject herself to the pain and manipulation. She didn't want to continue to make excuses for him as she had throughout the past number of years. When he took off skiing while she went in for her first biopsy, she pretended she was fine with it and actually preferred to be with her sisters and mum. It was nice, sure, but she didn't know what it would be like to have a loving, attentive man with her. She went alone to every single chemo and doctor's appointment. She convinced herself she was independent and liked to be alone. The day they went together and received the glorious celebratory news from the surgeon, her nodes were clear. Instead of celebrating together with a picnic or a lunch out together, he said, nah, I'm going back to work. She drove home from that thinking once again, wow, he really doesn't give a shit about me. And the deep loneliness set in. She wanted to celebrate this big news that her cancer hadn't spread. It was the news they'd been, or apparently she'd been holding her breath for two long weeks for, and he didn't care to note it in any way at all. That hurt intensely. As Andrea said, that was not normal husband behavior. He used to love and adore her, but she couldn't remember what it felt like. She couldn't live with the pain of manipulation anymore. This whole experience had shed light on this man whom she adored since she was a young, pretty blonde of 21. It was highlighting him, the man, not the man in their relationship, but him as a person, as a person who would act and behave the way he had. She believed, and still believes, the single most important element in a healthy marriage is respect. She had lost respect for him as a person. Coming to this realization was earth-shattering, really devastating. That's what brought her to today. It pushed her towards today, remembering her promise to her friend also edged her to today. I'll deal with it once I'm better and back on my feet. Well, she was better now. She was exercising again, enjoying life again, socializing, and back at work. Sitting on the stairs outside of the children's bedrooms, she sat twirling her wedding band around her finger. She listened to the sounds of the three of them, finally bathed, read to, and settled into bed, drifting off to sleep. Little innocent pets. She stood up and slowly, quietly made her way down those stairs, making her way to the back of the house where he sat watching the television. He was watching some documentary on German battleships and their demise. Fitting. The warmth of the wood fire filled the entire room, fighting the cold night. He sat beside the fireplace on the cut-figuring couch that could fit their whole family if they snuggled up all together, his legs up on the coffee table and his arms back around his head. She sat down on the leather chair adjacent to the couch and asked him to turn off the television and took a deep breath. No more desperation, she thought. Suddenly, she wasn't scared to upset things anymore. She had already given up and mentally prepared herself to take the next steps into a new life. She found her guts. She found her power again. From this point on, everything was laid out bare. No more hiding, no more keeping quiet or feeling like she deserved mistreatment. She told him exactly what she thought without caring about the consequences of being completely and utterly honest. Whoosh. There is something exhilarating about not having anything to lose anymore. She'd already given up on him emotionally and had already designed a new life in her head. She told her husband that she was tired of him withholding his love and attention from her for so long. She told him she would look elsewhere for what she needed because he clearly didn't have it to give. She told him that he humiliated her 
and broke her heart too many times. She told him she wanted out. She was looking at new places to live, that it was time to move on for both of them. This woman was telling her husband that she wanted out of their damaged marriage. She was taking back control of her own life. Suddenly, he was listening intently. It surprised her a bit. Pleasantly, but warily. She was not used to that. He wasn't giving her that distant gaze. That seemed to say he wasn't really interested. His eyes met hers. He sat straight up and really paid attention to what she said. He didn't argue or blow off every point she made, like he usually did. She had truly thought he would have been relieved to have an invitation to leave their marriage since he was so unhappy with her. But somehow, he wasn't relieved. Rather, he was taken aback by her words. Almost a tiny bit shocked. Maybe by her power? Her new attitude? What did he expect? Did he really expect her to stay after everything that happened? Wow. Jenny, thank you so much for that. I can't wait to discuss with you, but let's go ahead and take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll chat. Hi, my name is Jen Aubrey. I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I was diagnosed with stage 2A breast cancer at the age of 50 last year in 2021. I recently attended a free wildfire pop-up writing workshop for the young breast cancer community. It was just what I needed to get my writing juices flowing. The progression of the writing prompts and the quotes with them were so helpful. As I was writing, things just came out that I had forgotten. It was so therapeutic for me. I also loved hearing other people's stories. I realized that there are so many others out there feeling exactly how I am with the same struggles. And I want to do something to make it better for others that go down the same path. I can't recommend this workshop enough. Thank you so much for the love, Jen. All right, back to you, Jenny, and your powerful, powerful writing. Thank you again for writing and reading today. Well, thank you, April, for encouraging me to to write it. Absolutely. I think it's a really important story. And as you said in your bio, you know, some people and you said it in your piece, too, you know, some people do have a strong connection with their partner. And those stories tend to be louder than the stories that that aren't as um, easy you know, to, to digest. So I just hats off to you for telling a story that I know there are people right now feeling seen for the first time hearing it from you. Thank you. That's one of the reasons why I I wanted to write it or wanted to share it really. It was because I I knew I couldn't be the only one, Mm -hmm. even though that's all I was reading. Exactly. I mean, so many of our stories are like that. Um, our, our stories that kind of have these twinges of shame around them, we tend to keep them deep inside and believe that we are the only ones. Um, so let let me ask you about kind of the finding the courage to write this story. And I think doing it with a pseudonym was was really important to you. Can you talk a little bit about coming to that decision and maybe if there were upsides and downsides to it? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm curious what you'll say. Yeah. Um, well, I wrote this story probably a thousand times in my head before I even put pen to paper. And um, it really was uh, through your groups and, and the wildfire, wildfire groups that 
um, started to let me admit to it uh, almost because a lot of this I would just push down, push down. But this is a real part of my relationship and this is a real part of me and, and him. And um, spoiler alert, if we had actually divorced, <laughs> then <laughs> I think it um, maybe I would have shared it openly. Because um, even though those people who are married know that marriage is not a straight road, some people have it easier than others, for sure. Um, but um, it's hard to admit that things can get really bad and things can actually improve. And so I didn't want to... This is going to sound maybe crazy to some that just listened, but I didn't want to hurt my husband more than we'd already been hurt as as a unit. And um, so writing this and being encouraged by your groups and then being encouraged by my small, close writing group of friends um, made it possible for me to to still share it because I think it's really important but not have to uh, put my name to it and say, yeah, yeah, that's us. We're the couple. That's us. And share it with my husband and my children too. It's not something they, I want them to, to read. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the drawbacks though, I would say is that I'm proud of the story and I feel like I can't share it. Um, and so that's a drawback. And uh, I've, I've shared it with two people, one of them being Andrea, who was uh, mentioned in the, in the story. But uh, it's still, it's still, I'm still glad that I, I chose a pseudonym because I wouldn't have shared it. I really wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it's a really interesting thing. I think that you needed the pseudonym in order to unlock the story. And I <laughs> know you said you wrote it a thousand times in your head, but it's different when you, you actually do put it down on paper. Oh, yeah. But I've often wondered, you know, we published this story a while ago now um, in our family issue. And so we're coming up on two years since you wrote this piece, incredibly. Um, and I've often wondered about that part when you published it you saw it go out in the world you saw it get good reception that piece of you that couldn't raise your hand and say that was uh -huh. me I did that yeah well I'll tell you the the day that you published it uh I panicked <laughs> I panicked <laughs> one of my in-laws had started following wildflower because i told her i had some other piece published and then it was published and i thought oh my god she's gonna see my picture even though it was a bit masked and that and i i just was shaking but um i realized it wouldn't be the worst thing that can happen mm. if she saw it um uh yeah so i, I I'm not sure if I want this part of it or not. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure, but my I still haven't I haven't told my husband I wrote it. And I I I mean it's a very, very private thing, right? And 
that's why the pseudonym was so great because I know people need to hear, hear this. I needed to hear this when I was going through it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, I'm curious if in addition to letting you publish with a different name at the top of the page, I'm wondering if in addition to that, embodying this this writer, Jenny Collins, if you sitting down at your table and kind of sinking into Jenny, did that give you, I don't know, I'm wondering if it gave you the power that, that an alter ego can to, to feel things, to say things, to share things kind of from this reserved, or I'm sorry, this, this removed place. Like you were almost were taking on the role of the narrator. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Third person. Absolutely. Because I think I even admitted things that I probably, before I sat down to write, it, hadn't admitted to myself. And when you write something down and you've been telling yourself, well, that's our normal, that's the way we do things, you know, that's just him um, or us. Uh, you start to believe it. And when you write it, when I started writing down, I thought, oh, my God, this is terrible. Like, this is really, it was really bad. It, it is really bad, not just past tense. That is, it was a terrible experience. And all the things I said about, you know, losing respect and all those things are, are true. And it kind of validated my, um, my feelings to myself. And Jenny was able to do that for me. Mm -hmm. And even writing any subsequent piece, uh, about this and I've been asked you know what what happened next um, I still haven't brought myself to do that because it's quite a story uh, but maybe Jenny will will allow me to because um, I'm not putting my neck out really mm -hmm. except for people really close to me that I love and respect that are you know would quote keep my secret well exactly and I think it's the writing, regardless of whether it gets shared, published, et cetera, it's the writing itself that is important and healing. And you know this from being in workshops with me, but I've talked about the need for really good hiding place for your journal, for your stories until you're ready for them to be seen. And yeah, in a way, Jenny is your really good hiding place. I have a feeling your um, your family member didn't see you in that issue in that story because they weren't expecting to find you in that and it's so interesting right. you know we ha we look at everything through our own lenses um and so you know you felt vulnerable in that moment but she was the perfect hiding spot for you so right yeah that's right and and you're right that i received so much um positive feedback just um not about the writing but about the uh you know, someone feeling seen, someone else saying, oh, my gosh, finally, I've, you know, I've had a similar experience or something like that. And it's, it's really hard when you're diagnosed with any, any of breast cancer, any stage, and it's the worst moment in most of our lives. And then to see what you thought was your rock and your base is wobbly and there's major holes in it. It's, that's really awful. And it can really, you know, mess up your whole life. 
It's true. It's true. Well, so you have this opportunity here on this podcast to speak directly into the ear of someone who is living this experience too and feels alone. What advice do you have for them? Well, um, I mean, clearly start to admit it to yourself. Um, Like you said, use a different lens. And if that's writing in third person or from a different name, um, do it because you may see things and understand things that you really didn't let yourself before or you didn't you just didn't notice before. Um, in terms of a marriage, um, I started thinking about what I would write as an update. And I, I called this the Cold War. And I did that um, because it was a frosty place for sure. But um, also because it's it's a period in time. And things change before and things were different before. So, I mean, you know, the next the next phase or chapter might be called the wild years. And then I was thinking another one could be happiness. And then for me, the new bomb, which is metastatic acceptance and all that. So. It's a process. Um, You're not alone, for sure. It feels like it. Find one friend that really you can just put it all out there with. Mm. You know, that's really important. And, and I, I had that. Yeah. And there was no, they weren't judgmental, even though they were like so mad. They still respected me and my choice. Yeah. Oh, I love that advice. Uh, before we part, I want to read something you wrote. Um, this was part of Jenny's bio in in this issue, the family issue where we published the story. And it really speaks to this question I often ask my writers, which is, what did you come here to say? You know, what was ultimately the message of this piece? And just coincidentally, I think you wrote this in your bio. So I'm going to read it and then I We'll give you the opportunity to add on to it if you have anything else. So you wrote, bless those couples who have it down pat and women who have true unwavering partners. They are deserving. Not everyone has the same experience. Living with an all-consuming diagnosis, dealing with the side effects of the treatments, the rebalance of responsibilities, and worst of all, the stress of uncertainties is too much for some people to handle gracefully. Too much for some relationships, yet we all deserve unwavering love and support. Cancer is a major stress on any family. My advice is get help early, get your partner help early, and deal with it head on. Wow, good. That's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, in fact, I mean, two things I want to say that um, that story is what I was first diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids were all little. I had a baby still. Um, my youngest is 15 now. Um, yeah, I want, I wanted to say that when I was first diagnosed and I went through all this stuff, there, there wasn't the support that there is now. Like I didn't have a phone with me all the time. We didn't text all the time. There weren't Facebook groups, all that stuff. There wasn't that support. And going through this and um, together reflecting on it because, you know, the next chapter of our marriage or life was, you know, down and dirty, really getting everything out there, which was actually a really freeing time. And it took years to recover and not even recover, but to rebuild what 
what we wanted in the future because we weren't the same as we were before. Mm -hmm. We weren't. And um, in many ways, it's better because we've been through that. We did this on our own. And one thing that when I was diagnosed with the metastatic, like nine years later, which was a total shock, we both said, okay, this time we're not doing that again. Mm -hmm. We we are going to get counseling. We are going to get support. And um, I had tons of support uh, in terms of groups and all that kind of stuff. And your group had a huge influence on my life. And I've told you that before. It yeah. really saved me. And, um, and we did counseling and we talked about it. And I said, hey, I'm not doing this again the way we did before. And he didn't want to. You know, he, he grew too. And the other thing I wanted to say was that um, through this, I learned that, you know, I never thought it was perfect, um, but it really, um, it really hit home that, you know, I'm flawed, he's flawed, and um, you have to accept each other's limits, even sometimes when Maybe it's not exactly what you thought you were signed up for, that what you need. Uh, but, you know, that's okay. That's okay because we're all flawed, right? And one of the big things, and maybe this is a piece of advice for people going through it, I don't know. But I think one of the great lessons in all that was that I learned that I would be fine without him. Mm. And that sounds very cold. And, well, what kind of relationship is that? But I would be fine without him. I love having him in, in my life, but, you know, I was ready to leave and had chosen a place, to, a house and, and had made the decision already. And so um, I knew I'd be fine. I still know if I walked out right now, I'd be fine. And, and he does too. And so that's a very, um, that's a stretch from Hollywood love or books that you read or, or maybe not just Hollywood, love, maybe other relationships. They have to be with each other. They're soulmates. I believe maybe we're soulmates, but I'd be fine. Mm -hmm. And that's what the whole cancer journey taught me is that I am going to be fine. Oh, my God. Jenny, I have goosebumps. I am so glad <laughs> you just shared that. That's incredible. And I really hope you do write this next chapter because you have so many lessons learned and I just want to highlight one part that you said, well, I could highlight all of it, but I just think um, coming to this realization that you would be okay is so powerful. Mm. And that is one of the most urgent questions. I think we as human beings, but maybe particularly facing cancer, that's the drumbeat. That's the question we go to sleep with, we wake up with. And what a relief to have found that answer for yourself. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. They don't care what's going around. I mean, I can wait, be up all night with stress and worry, but my my inside, my soul, whatever you want to call it, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, well, that's a really great place for us to end. I think I know the answer to this, but does Jenny Collins have any social media or anything where people can find find Jenny in her writing? No, Jenny cannot be found. 
<laughs> but maybe maybe that's not a bad idea. <laughs> well, we'll keep everyone posted. If, if Jenny okay. keeps writing, then Jenny shall have social media. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you for coming on today and chatting with me and reading your story. Thank you, April. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. Absolutely. So today's writer and guest was Jenny Collins. Her piece was called Cold War from the December 2020 issue of Wildfire Magazine called Family. I'm April Sturt, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our now 39 issues in the Wildfire Archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There is no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. If you like what you hear, leave us a starred review and help others find their way to writing the stories that need to be told. Finally, here is today's writing prompt. I want you to develop a pen name and make a list of the stories that you would tell that they would tell on your behalf. What stories would emerge if you had total anonymity? Set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping or editing. Honestly, there is magic in keeping those fingers moving. What would your pen name be? And make that list of stories they would tell on your behalf. Eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it'll take you. And don't forget about the Wildfire Journal. I recently compiled some of my favorite prompts from this podcast and put them into a really cute, I think it's pretty, it's a journal you can print out and you can get to writing your stories. Find that at wildfirecommunity.org. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.